0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org. Let's pray
1: together. Heavenly Father, I know I need your help desperately this morning. If we're all honest, we're all there. So we ask that You would come through the mercy purchased for us in the cross that we long to have at the center of our solar system. Work mercy on our behalf this morning. Through me as a teacher, and through every individual in this room, grant ears to hear how deaf we can be sometimes. May it not be so. May you work into our beings today your truth. Help us hate sin and love you as a Savior. In Jesus I pray. Amen. The book of Judges. Right on the heels of Joshua, very intentionally answering a question that was left open at the end of that book. If you recall, Joshua ended with an open question. In chapter 24, three times, Joshua calls the people, will you follow God? Will you put away your idols? And three times the people responded, We will follow God. But conspicuously missing from their response was any mention of the idols. And then what we read at the very end of the book is this. So I'm in Joshua 24, is right at the very last three verses of this book. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that Yahweh did for Israel. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Joshua is dead. The high priest is dead. And during their lives, Israel was passionately seeking God, heeding God. That's what we're told. But we're not told what happened afterwards. There's no baton passing like there was at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses shifted the leadership over to Joshua and said, you've listened to me, now listen to him. None of that in Joshua. Joshua declared God is faithful to his word and the ever-ringing question that stood through the book was, will you be faithful to His Word? God's been faithful to His Word over and over and over again. The verse that I hopped over there at the end of Joshua kind of put a stamp on it. And they buried the bones of Joseph in the land. At the end of Genesis, Joseph had said, This is not where I'm going to stay in Egypt. I may be a leader of this land. I could have been buried among the kings as a second right-hand man to Pharaoh, and that's not where I want to be buried. Keep my mummy. Keep my sarcophagi and plant it in the land when God fulfills His promise. And Joshua ends by saying, God has been faithful. But the big question mark will Israel be faithful? And for the future readers of this book who already know that answer, the question is, who will they be? So, the conspicuous ending of Joshua and the question, what is next? So now we come to the book of Judges. And in the first... So so there's three big sections to this book. There's the introduction that we're going to cover today, and then there's six cycles of judges. And I say cycles because the same story happens six times, just with different enemies and different types of judges, but it's the same basic cycle, and we're going to see that unpacked today. And then at the end of the book, there's a conclusion that simply gives the effects of how deeply rooted Israel had become like the world. When I say in my little outline at the top of the page, Israel's Canaanization, I made up a word. <laughs> it should sound like something you know. What does it sound like? Canaanites, yeah. So I could have just said Israel's failure. But this help un- helps unpack it. The very people that they were called to, do, to put away, to, to destroy, became an obstacle, a thorn in their side, and they became like them. So their canonization, the Lord's response to that canonization, and then the book ends. And it ends actually with not the final story. And we're going to see that in just a second. It ends with a story that happens very early on, not at the end of the period of the Judges, but it ends with a story that apparently happens very early in the period of the Judges. Soon after, Eliezer... So it goes, Aaron the high priest, he has a son named Eleazar who becomes the high priest, and then he has a son. Eliezer dies, his son Phinehas is the high priest in the days of the judges. And it's in his day that we read about the horrendous ordeal at the end of the book. An ordeal that just shows how deeply rooted sin can become. How blinded Israel had gotten. How dark the days were when we open up the book of Samuel longing for a king. So we start out. What was Israel supposed to do upon entering the land? Just a little refresher on Deuteronomy. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to do away with the Canaanites. Here's what we had heard. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession and He clears away many nations, seven of them, in that day, when He gives them over to you and you defeat them, we're not looking for just defeat. We're not looking for you just to come in and overpower their land. We're looking for you to utterly destroy them because God's end times future judgment that awaits all the world intruded into space and time in this moment to bring judgment on the Canaanites. God had declared their death. That's what Israel was supposed to do. Make a complete destruction of them. Why? Why did God declare judgment, destruction on the Canaanites at this moment? Was it a random whim? Why? Why? This is all setting for where we're headed in Judges. We know what Israel was supposed to do. Why were they supposed to do it? Why? Okay, there's a good why. So that they wouldn't be influenced. The Canaanites are, being, are viewed as obstacles to Israel's pursuit of God. And in Deuteronomy, that's the biggest reason that's given why Israel is supposed to destroy them. Their own life is at stake. But I was looking for a different answer. They were wicked. It's not just that they would be a bad influence. When God says, Israel's thinking, we're getting the land because we're really good. And God says, no, it has nothing to do with your goodness. It has everything to do with their wickedness. Indeed, you're a stubborn people. It's not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations, period. You'll remember back in Genesis 15, 6. Well, let me finish reading this. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the word that he had sworn to the patriarchs. Who remembers what word God had sworn to the patriarchs way back in Genesis? What had God told them about the land and about the Canaanites? Brother David. said, I will bless you. Israel will be a blessing to the nations, and He will give them this land. Now, The nations that would enjoy the blessing of God were not these ones. Israel would get the land, but not yet. What had God told Abraham about the timing? When the cup was full, the wickedness of the Amorites is building, but it's not complete. And my judgment will only be brought down when it's complete. So your children will be slaves in a land not their own for 400 years. But after that, I will bring them out with great possessions. And where are they headed? They're heading to the land. And that's all happened. And the cup of God's patience is full. It runs out, people. But if you're breathing, there is still hope. So Israel was called to utterly destroy the Canaanites. And now we come to the book of Judges. Look at Judges 1 with me. We've got a good beginning. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? They actually prayed. It's a good start. They asked God for clarity, for wisdom. Who do you want to go first I want Judah to go first, God says. So Judah talks with his brother Simeon. Come on up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. So they, they tag team and they go in. Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Parasites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. It's looking good. But then we come to verse 18. Judah Judah captured Gaza, one of the five Philistine cities, with its territory. They captured Ashkelon, number two of the five Philistine cities. And they also got Ekron, number three. And Yahweh was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out all the inhabitants of the plain. That's where the rest of the Philistines lived. And then it tells us why. It was all because they had chariots of iron. God is really strong until we get to the chariots of iron. And then everything begins to tumble. Notice the tumbling. So Caleb, Remember, there was two guys, Caleb and Joshua. They were from the previous generation. Caleb does it right. He enters into Hebron and he wipes out everyone in Hebron. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And what that suggests to me is that The book of Judges was completed before, this part of Judges anyway, was completed before David captured the Jebusites in Jerusalem. Up to this day, there's still Jebusites at Jerusalem. But Benjamin wasn't the only ones. Look down in verse 27. Manasseh too did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-shan and its villages. We continue... Uh, for a certain reason. I'm going to keep reading that verse. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashan and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Here's a picture of Megiddo. What we see in the center of the picture is a large circle. The circle is of a Canaanite altar. There's also a person on it, but he's not dead. A Canaanite altar, it's from the time of Abraham, What does that tell you? This is in Megiddo. That's the verse I was just reading. Manasseh did not destroy all the inhabitants of Megiddo. So the Canaanites continued in Megiddo. They continued to worship in Megiddo. And because this is an altar from the time of Abraham, so think about what we've done so far. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses passes the baton to Joshua. Joshua dies. Now... The tribe of Manasseh is called to move in and they didn't overcome all the people in Megiddo. That's why we still find an altar, a Canaanite altar in Megiddo to this day. They didn't do their job. Now I'm going to go backwards. Where's the altar? That little blue guy right in the middle. There's a round See the round circle with the blue guy right in the middle? Do you need me to help you? All right. There's a round mound. It's about five feet off the ground. And a little guy wishing he had a better end right there. So my point is that this altar, it's a reconstruction, but the remains were, already, were there. So they've reconstructed it fully, but the remains were there, and it's an altar that's dated to the time of Abraham, which means that Israel, when they were supposed to come in, what were they supposed to do? Make no covenant with them. Do not have pity on them. Show, uh, do not intermarry with them, but thus you shall do to them. You shall shatter their altars, break down their pillars, chop down their Asherah poles, burn their idols with fire. And they didn't do it. Now, we keep reading in chapter 1. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of ben- Bethanat. Now, a little more background. What had God said He would do? If Israel did not heed his voice, what did he say? Pardon? He would turn his back on them. That's one. Rather than God having working for you, he's going in the other way. Or you could say, rather than having work for you, he's now going to work against you. Remember what happened to Achan? in the book of Joshua. In contrast to Rahab the Canaanite who repents and God treats her like an Israelite. He shows her mercy. We've got Achan the Israelite who does not heed the voice of God and he becomes the enemy. Now we've already seen echoes of Deuteronomy in the book. It's the instruction of Deuteronomy that's guiding reading. We read the history of the covenant in light of the covenant. That's what makes us informed readers. So I'm going to show you a verse right now and we're going to see an echo of it in in Judges in just a minute. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain, this is numbers. This is before Israel gets to where They are now. This is while they're still on the east side of the Jordan, looking across the Jordan, saying we're eager to get into the promised land. This is Moses still. He hasn't passed the baton to Joshua, but this is what God said. If you don't get rid of them all, then those of whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes. That sounds like it would hurt. And thorns in your sides. Hear that. And they will trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Last night, I was, yesterday, I spent most of my day in my attic. It's taken me seven years to put an exhaust fan in my upstairs kitchen, in my upstairs bathroom. Finally, I did it. And um, I didn't get any thorns in my side, but I got a number of roofing nails in my head. (laughs) Those that you let remain will be ever pointy, they'll continue to pry and prod and hurt. It won't stop. And I will do to you what I thought I would do to them. Let's look at God's response to this in chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And the angel said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. You experienced great redemption, gracious redemption. And this is how you act. You experienced unmatched provision. Massive obstacles standing in your way. And I came in to overcome them, overcome them, overcome them. Think about your past. Think about what you've experienced. All of that. And yet, I said I would never break my covenant with you I also said you shall not make any covenant with the inhabitants of the land and you shall break down their altars. That's straight out of Deuteronomy 7. But you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, listen, I will not drive them out before you but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be snares to you. That's fascinating. Sin is judgment. Sin results in judgment. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse doesn't say sin will bring judgment on you. It says sin is the judgment of God. It says, I'm going to put these people, keep them in your lives. You like them so much, they're going to remain in your lives. Whatever the obstacle to your God-centeredness, I'm going to leave it in your life, and it's going to be a thorn to you, and you're going to continue to get pricked by it. It's going to cause you to stumble over and over and over again. You like sin? I'm going to give you over to sin. Sin is, does not only deserve judgment, the very nature of sin is judgment. Hear Paul in Romans 1. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. This is the nature of the curse. And part of God's curse against sin is more sin. And in the context of Romans, there's an amazing reversal that's so explicit. If more sin is actually part of the curse, and Christ bears the curse on our behalf, then it clarifies why those who are in Christ, who have a new identity, should no longer be sinning because the curse has been removed. In Romans 6, 17, Paul says, Thanks be to God that you obeyed. Remember that? Obedience is a thanks be to God reality. But that's not all that he says. And you can't quite read it in the ESV, but it's the exact same word that we have here in Romans 1. In Romans 1, God gave you over to your sin. He gave you over to your sin. And in Romans 6.17, Thanks be to God that you obeyed the form of teaching to which you were given up. That's what it says. You were given up to obey teaching, just as before you were given up to sin. That's what the cross does. It reverses the curse, and all of a sudden, when God was working against us, now He's working for us, giving us over to new desires, new capacities. He gives us over to obedience, and all that we can do is say thanks be to God. Or how about Romans 12? in view of God's mercy. I call you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to this world. But what? Be transformed how? No longer will God give you over to a debased mind. Now, by His mercy, He gives us over to a renewed mind. In the book of Judges, the judges are not those dispensing laws or sitting behind a big desk and overseeing court proceedings. The judges, everyone, are deliverers. We call them judges because they're the instruments of God to judge the sin of the enemy. But the enemy itself is one that God raises up. They're deliverers. That's why I called this the God who disciplines and delivers. And standing behind the book of Judges with one judge, two judges, six judges in a row. Every one imperfect, but every one, as they are used by God to overcome the enemy, it's like it heightens our hunger for the seventh judge, the ultimate judge. The ultimate deliverer who will finally definitively put an end to all evil. Sin not only brings judgment, sin is judgment. And therefore, when the judgment is addressed at the cross, it makes sense why it is that we should progressively, not perfect overnight, but progressively over a lifetime, see an ever-awakening Turning away from sin. The downward spiraling cycles of Israel's disobedience. Look with me at verse 6. Joshua is all of a sudden alive again. So that just tells me that this is a flashback. So what we read in Judges 1 happened, It said, after the death of Joshua. So now we're going back in time to what sets us up. And it's word for word the end of Joshua. The book of Joshua. So we started out by reading Joshua one thirty one Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And now we read in Josh, Judges 2 when Joshua dismissed the people the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. It's calling us to it's, it's, it's intentionally shaping an echo and it's raising the big question mark that I mentioned before. And now it's going to answer it. Look at the answer. So Joshua, the son of Nun, died, the servant of the Lord. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. Verse 10, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There's our answer. Joshua ends saying, will you be faithful to God's word like he's been faithful? One generation. Now, I say one generation. In this verse, it's a little bit unclear. Just another generation arose. At what point? But it's at the end of the book that I get my clue. In Judges twenty twenty eight which is right in the midst of that horrendous episode of the Levite who gives his concubine to the men of Gibeah and they rape her through the night. We're not even told that she's dead. What we're told is the the Levite comes outside. He's supposed to be a religious leader. He's given his men over who had already asked if they could sleep with him. He just picks up this girl. We're not told yet that she's dead. And he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her throughout the land of Israel. It's a horrendous story. And a civil war breaks out. So you've got intense sodomy in Gibeah of Benjamin. And now all of Israel rises up to fight against Benjamin. And what we're told is all this happens while Phinehas is ministering before the Lord. Phineas is the son of Eliezer, and at the end of the book of Joshua, it told us, and Eliezer, the high priest, died. Eliezer is the son of Aaron. So it goes Aaron with Moses. One generation after him, it would be Joshua, and it would also be Eliezer. And now Phineas is the son of Eliezer. It's just one generation. It's within a hundred years of Joshua's death, Probably a lot less than that. So it said every, the Israel followed God as long as Joshua lived and as long as everyone that was alive during his period lived. But then Eliezer died. And the book of Judges says that another generation arose. And when it says that, I think it's the first generation. Because Phineas is still alive. And that story at the end of the book is designed to say how low Israel got. It only takes one generation. It only takes you not being the mom, not being the dad, not being the grandmother. That's all it takes. When I read, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done, I just feel the weightiness of that as a dad. What it tells me is one, the priests weren't doing their job the pastors were not proclaiming the truth. They were given the commission to teach all of God's ways to the people. But it also tells me this, that moms and dads weren't doing their job. Yesterday, Isaac got to go in the attic. He's my eight-year-old son. See, he's up for the first time in the attic with his dad, sitting on boards across the rafters. And... I had a very tight position and I was trying to nail in a 16-penny nail and having to do it with my left hand and having to do it like this. and I, I was just dripping down sweat. My shoulders were tense. My anxiety level was high. And I just said, Isaac, pray for your daddy. And we just paused right there and he prayed for me. And within a minute, the nail was in. And we paused again and said, thanks God. God's in charge of it all. He controls every moment, let alone knowing every moment. But 2 Corinthians 1 tells us why we pray. He brings the challenge so that we would not trust in ourselves but in Him. That's 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. But then it goes further. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, not only did he bring the challenge to make me dependent, the challenge in my life was a great gift from God because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But not only that, he's raised you up so that you can pray for me. That he would help me. And then Paul says, and surely he will help me so that many, many might give thanks to God. We paused and we prayed up in the attic with an anxiety-filled dad just asking God for help. We paused and prayed so that when God did help, as surely as He would, both me and my boy would be able to say, God did this. But a generation arose that didn't even recognize the works of God. The kindnesses of God were pouring out And yet, as it says in Romans 1, they neither honored God as God, nor did they give thanks to Him. And when God's kindness comes our way and we fail to honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, Romans 2 says we are stacking up for ourselves judgment in the final court of God. All the kindnesses will become exhibit A. Before God, in God's courtroom that we had hard hearts. Consider your lives. Think about how you can be a better roommate, a better son, a better daughter, a better brother or sister, a better father or mother, a better grandparent. Instructing in who God is and what God is has done. That was Israel's failure. And it results in a massive cycle. And that's where we'll pick up two weeks from now. Yeah. Right. And we will unpack that story more. But that's right. What you have is some level of of a standard, this is wrong. The sodomy is wrong. The brutality against this woman is wrong. And the entire nation, all 12 tribes, because Benjamin, as a tribe, rises up to protect Gibeah. And so all of the nation doesn't just come against a city and wipe it out. All the nation comes against the entire tribe of Benjamin. And they kill all the men in Benjamin. And then all the women are left and then they'll get husbands from them elsewhere. But I'm anticipating talking about that more next week. Brother Gordy. That's right. It mentions that she's dead afterwards. And so the text is, is, I'm not certain that were to understand that she was dead before he diced her. And I say that, it's hard language, but that's what he does. Um, I'll go back and look at it again. I, 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 think, I think it says something, words it in a way that allows a different reading. Where, where we're at right now with the book of Judges, just look at verse 11. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And if you just look at all six cycles of the Judges, 3.7 with Othniel, that's what it starts out by saying. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. with Ehud, And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord with Deborah and Barak. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of the six judges, the account, the way we know that we're now going on to a new story, that's how it starts it out. Evil, evil, evil. And it comes from all different directions. Every one of the six is a different tribe. Every one of the six has a different enemy. And I think they're used to say this was a perpetual problem, which means everywhere there were moms and dads who were taking God lightly, who were not passing on a passion for His supremacy to the next generation, which meant there was adults all over who were living, living blindedly, not honoring God as God and not giving thanks to Him. Search your hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You are faithful. You are our helper. In Christ Jesus, the curse is past. And part of that curse was more sin. Thank You that we are freed from sin. Work in us more and more what is pleasing in Your sight. Give us over more and more to obedience. And may the result be hearts that say, thanks be to God in Christ. Help us be mindful parents, mindful grandparents, mindful roommates, mindful co-workers. Help us, God. We're pleading to you. Quicken us with boldness. Let us see the glory that is around us and identify it. In Christ we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.